You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic. Welcome to episode 92. And I don't have much else to say today. No, it's- you know, I wish – the funny thing is like I'm laughing because of our conversation we just had. I need to start recording more of our pre-conversations mm-hmm. and maybe letting those filter in a little bit yeah, because yeah. we have some great conversations before, before we kick in. And yeah. then sometimes like I feel like – like I don't know how to get back into the normal <laughs> routine because we're just joking around. That's true. But so. today we're joined by Cass Urban Mead, and uh, she's from the Xerxes Society, and we're going to get to work with her um, in we're person excited about that. pretty soon, yeah. and we're really excited about that. Uh, but we're really excited because she is a specialist in wild bee populations, how they use trees. Which is often forgotten. We all we like to think about Say flowers and, and all the things, all the herbaceous plants on the ground, and how bees will use those because it's easy for us to see. But there's stuff that's happening 40, 50, 60 feet in the air that we don't see. But, you know, but Cass sees it. So you, you know, and it's one of those things where I think we all kind of know it. But you're right. You never think about. I never think about that. I never that never crosses my mind and never comes into conversation. And I realize I know absolutely nothing about it, which always makes for a great episode. Yes, yeah. that means and, I'll have and a lot, a lot of, of the trees bloom a little earlier, so it's going to be happening pretty soon too. But, yeah. uh, but why am I talking about the subject when we have the expert <laughs> right here? So, Cass, can you introduce yourself a little bit and tell us how you got into your current role, and and then we'll start kicking it into the bees a little bit. Sure. Um, hi. Thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, I'm Cass uh, Urban Mead, and I. Um, just moved from Ithaca, New York to this area. So I'm super excited to be here. Um, and gosh, yeah. So, um, I just started a position with Circe's. So if you've listened to the incredible episode with Kelly Gill, I'm moving in to work with Kelly. Um, and I'm just finishing up, um, a PhD at Cornell in the entomology department um, where I've been looking at, Bees in the woods, bees in the canopies, and especially bees in the woods um, right near orchards and kind of thinking about how that connects to, to pollination. Um, yeah, and hopefully, I don't know. Yeah, so I'm super excited to work with you guys and just so honored to be here today. Awesome. Two two things already off topic. So yeah. <laughs> because that's how we roll. Um, as a little spoiler, Kelly is coming in next week to record a week's worth of a native plant every day. So that will be live a week after you – everyone is listening to this podcast. So make sure you tune over to a native plant every day to hear that. And Tom, you actually lived – did you live in Ithaca for yeah. a while? Yeah, I lived there. So I was going to grad school at Cornell and uh, and I lived in Ithaca for – well, I guess it was like two and a half years. I don't know. It was so long ago. I barely remember. But yeah, that was it was an awesome town. I right. love that Is place. Is there any good pizza in Ithaca? Um, in my opinion, no. <laughs> All right. Everyone Bro. has to watch the YouTube version of this just so you can see Cass's face <laughs> in response yeah. to that. Growing one. up in, in New Jersey, which is really the pizza capital of the world, if we're being honest. Um, no, it was upstate New York pizza was 
No, it's so not. Far. I grew up in upstate New York too. And I, yeah. I don't think I knew what pizza was until I went to college. Yeah. yeah. Just, but, yeah. but wine, beer. <laughs> Oh yeah, they all the, <laughs> they the, all, that. all the little wineries that are popping up in our area of the world. Oh man, it's like ugh, not great. Yeah, <laughs> up there, really good, really good. So, all right, well, we'll. Oh, I oh, gotta, friend. I gotta figure that out. All right, I have a brand. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a brand new laptop, and this is the first time that I'm using it. So. Yeah, we're going to have some technical difficulties. Yeah. We're back to technical difficulties. Well, You're now- also looking very tan, by the way. Your, well, your you know. <laughs> Maybe a little burnt. It's, it's that new webcam. Yeah. Um, but we'll Thanks. we'll have to make sure we uh, treat you to some good pizza. Mm-hmm. Now that now that you're I in the area. To it. Oh, there's so much good food around here. It's, it's, it's a joy. <laughs> I'm missing the gorges, but I'm really excited about the food. Awesome. That's, you know, Ithaca is gorgeous, kind of the, the typical thing. Yes. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about your research research and just the basis yeah. of your research, how you came to start that research and and a little bit about the the, the meat and potatoes of, of what it is. Sure. Yeah. Um, So when I started grad school, I definitely didn't think I was going to be looking at the trees. You know, if when you're when you're kind of trying to figure out where you want to go, you have all these conversations with different advisors and you throw around ideas. And I remember chatting with Brian Danforth, who ended up being one of my co-advisors. And we were like, you know, there's that cool paper by Suzanne Batra in the 80s about red maple. But but no one really talks about the trees. And that was like kind of this one off conversation. And I, I started and we were but I, I knew I really cared about orchards. I'd worked a couple seasons on an orchard near where I grew up. And um, I was really interested in their work, looking at the number of wild bees who visit apple trees um, in the early spring. And, you know, in, in New York, where there's 420 species, we think, in the latest survey um, that's ongoing right now, um, it's been creeping up 416, 417, 418. We think we're at about 420 wild bee species in New York now. Um over 120 of those will visit apple flowers. And that was just like really amazing because that's, you know, a lot of bees don't even fly in the early spring. So you think, wow, like of all the bees, that all those 400, then there's only a subset of those are active in the spring and just a huge number of them will visit your apple flowers. And some of them are, you know, even better at moving pollen on a per visit basis than a honeybee is. So um, we were, I was really interested in those guys and then was reading some of the other research looking at, at those bees and the pollen they were carrying, um, work that Laura Rousseau did. And um, there was all this tree pollen that they were carrying on their legs, some ash and then, you know, some really expected pollen like willow. We know bees love willow. There's a lot of willow specialists. Um, but, but also maple and ash and a little bit of oak and even a little bit of birch scattered in there. And I was like, what in the world? Like, those aren't, those aren't bee trees. Those trees don't need bees. What's going on? So I got to take this awesome, um, tree climbing class because Cornell has an amazing outdoor education program. And my first fall I was taking tree climbing and I was like, well, hang on. I can get up here. Let's just, and they, they took a chance. And so I was still figuring out my thesis projects and they took a chance on me and were like, you know, if this all falls apart, you still have the summer to do some research. So, all right, sure. Go out in the spring, <laughs> climb as many trees as you can figure it out. And, um, and I ended up both doing a lot of climbing, but also you can only be in so many trees at once and the weather's bad in the spring. You only get so many sampling days. So I also set up all these canopy traps 
um, that I had out. So I got to see with my own eyes, like some really cool things happening up there. Um, and then also was, was catching bees in these passive, um, they're called pan traps. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so that's kind of an introduction to how, how okay. we ended up figuring it out and then just kept doing it for the next bunch of years. All right. Well, I already have a, a bunch of questions. Do you, Tom? <laughs> I'll, I'll let you start. You let me, all right. So you mentioned you're up to about 420 bee species. It, you know, and it's interesting because that's that area of the country. What mm-hmm. is there like an an average bee species per area like that you would say? I would imagine some are more and some are less. I I was just curious if like where we're at here, what the average amount of bee species were, um, or if or if that's even known because I guess other people would have to be doing those surveys all around the country. Yeah, you mean like the number in New Jersey or Pennsylvania? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um. I think. Oh, I should have gotten these numbers. I I think I can get back to you that Pennsylvania is also um, maybe I think they've beat us. I think they're around 450. There's okay. some really great folks at Penn State who are who are doing mm-hmm. that. Um, and then yeah, um, the Winfrey Group and some other folks in New Jersey are mm-hmm. all are, have all done sampling. And oh, I don't actually know the New Jersey number off the no. top of my head. I bet it's 200 or so, which is you know pretty comparable because yeah. it's just a smaller state. Although you've got a ton of different ecosystems, and you know New Jersey is such a diverse, amazing place. So I, I, I don't know. I wasn't sure if it would be yeah. limited to. Like the amount of active time – like I would imagine that in New York, there's less act- – like upstate New York, there's less active time for bees compared to say like North Carolina or or, or South Carolina yeah. where it's warmer longer. So I didn't know if that would limit it. And if saying like – like Tom was mentioning, when, when trees are blooming, maybe not a lot of other things are blooming. So mm-hmm. does that make tree pollen more important to bees at that time of the year that are active at that time? I'm assuming this is where it's going and that's where my head is going. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's like, yeah. So many good questions. Um, You know, just, just one of those things about like time of year availability. I, I just a reminder maybe for listeners too, is like a lot of these native wild bees are solitary and they don't live in colonies that are active all year, but are only out for maybe four, six, eight weeks, and then their whole lifespan is over. So a lot, you can pack a lot of different life cycles in, even in a short growing season. Um, and a lot of our bees that are active in the spring are actually only spring bees. And then you have whole other groups of solitary bees that are also only out for short periods of time um, in the summer and in the fall. And that's really cool because you get to watch the community change. Um, so I, I think that's a really cool question. I don't know the actual answer okay. of like, does the length of growing season constrain it? But, it, you know, each bee maybe it's different. And then just like, you know, the, the Southwest is actually where we think the highest number of bee species mm-hmm. are. Um, and that's because so many bees are, are soil nesting. There are all these gentle solitary bees. They're not, you know, the, the way we talk about ground bees, they're not scary, you know, social um, <laughs> nesters in the ground that are going to come attack you. They're, they're all these little solitary nests provisioning. And um, because it's so dry out there, they're less likely to be, um, to be drowned. So there's just more ground area and there's all these different, um, you know, desert plant specialists and arid adapted bees. Yeah. And I was actually, when Fran was asking his question, I was thinking the other way saying, oh, it's so dry. And, um, 
and this is probably a wrong assumption on my part, but I was like, oh, they don't have the plant diversity like we do because it is so dry. That's probably wrong when I'm, when I'm actually thinking about it. But, uh, yeah, I was thinking, oh, there's probably fewer wild bees down there because they just don't have the the um, habitat and resources to support those bees. But that's, so that's interesting that it's actually the opposite of that and that there's more. Yeah, that's yeah, a lot of them, it's, it's, it's so cool. No. <laughs> yeah, a lot of them perfectly timed with, like, a desert plant who only comes out, you know, maybe even every other year, but even the bees will only emerge some of their babies some years rather than other years just to make sure they catch those. So, the, I mean, the, the it's, yeah, the, the stories are amazing about the natural history and the timings and stuff. And that has to come with coevolution over time, you mm-hmm. know, to – that. And that's something that I guess we're still learning as we go, and that's why your re- your research is so important because we keep learning this time and time again how little we know <laughs> about yeah. about these yeah. subjects, and you can't even begin to to find out where you are until you figure out what you've already lost, and that yeah. some of that is is kind of hard to capture. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I guess that question like gets back to your other your other question too, because. You know, because bee biologists correctly have, you know, said like, oh, there's so much diversity in the deserts. And then um, there's kind of been this assumption that just forests aren't good bee habitat. It's just like not not where bees are, maybe in the tropics. And people knew those were kind of understudied because we know tropics are, you know, they're so layered and there's so many flowers up in the canopy. And there's a little more work on on those bees. But in the temperate ecosystems, it's kind of been like, yeah, you know, they're they're closed forests. It's dark in there, especially in the summer. You walk around, you don't see a lot going on. Um, and but then there's this like all this like the other part of the research that inspired me that I, I forgot to mention. It's just you know, and this is only continued. The evidence is only mounted in all different systems that the closer you are, especially if you're in an ag focused research, the closer you are to the forest. The more hedgerows you have, the closer you are to the hedgerow, or just the more forest you have on the landscape, the more bee diversity and abundance you get in those crop fields. And that often, not in every system, not always, but it often correlates to yield, to fruit set, to fruit quality. Um, You know, it's not a guarantee you're going to see a huge bump at every single field by planting your hedgerow, right? But like on average, that's pretty consistently the message. Um, and so we're like, why? <laughs> um, and so starting in this early spring has been a big part of it. And I definitely can't say we've figured it all out now, but, but, you know, that's really cool. I think I was going to say, I want to take a step back yeah. to something you said a little earlier yeah. about sure. bee life cycles. Cause this is another misconception I had is do you think, well, the bees come out in the, the spring and then they stay until the fall. And yeah. I guess I'm, Looking back, I'm like, was I really that dumb that that's what I, <laughs> what I thought? When it's like that's not the case with so many other things. But um, yeah. So how? What are some of these bees that like are only out for four weeks? And then what? What does the rest of their year look like? Yeah. Cool. Oh, so fun. Yeah. Um. You know, I think. Oh, how to even start? Right. I, I I don't think your question is dumb or your assumption is dumb. First of all, right? Like you know, you get especially if you're, which we all are. Like we think about honeybees first, oh, right? Yeah. Yeah. They're all, you know, I I don't anymore, but I, it took me ten years of unlearning that, right? So like you know, there's they're in their hive over over the winter, and then as soon as it's warm, or you get a warm day in February, you know, they all come out, and then they're out all summer because they're a big social colony. Um, and so even if like individual bees die over mm-hmm. that period, right, you have bees the whole season. And that's something else is I think at least I, I 
when you think about it, it's like, oh, it's the same bees all the time, and like they're coming out year. It's the same bees, but no, that's not. They're laying eggs and they're dying off. No. I don't know what they're how long they actually live for. I guess I'm almost thinking about flies too, and how like they said, well, the house fly only lives like 24 hours, and it's always new flies. But it's like, oh, that one fly's been in my house for for two weeks, and I. But it's probably a different fly. It's just, and yeah, I'm I'm like unlearning yeah. right now as we go. But yeah, is that like it's not the same honeybees that you're seeing every day or every month or every year. It's, it's right. different individuals. Yeah. They just all look the same. Cause you can barely see them. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right. Sorry about that. No, no, yeah. it's exactly right. Right. That's, that's, that's the, that's, yeah, that's what it feels like to be so big. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to like, yeah. it's hard to, it's, it's like why it's hard to get canopy sampling. It's like, it's mm-hmm. up there. Like bees are little. Right. So it really depends. I guess like maybe I, can tell you like two major life cycles mm-hmm. to yeah. help illustrate oh, that. So is that okay? Um, yeah, of course. Like, cool. Yeah. So like for bumblebees, bumblebees are social, right? Everybody, and maybe you've had a bumblebee colony in a wood pile or um, under a, a shrub in your house, or, you know, a little under a leaf pile somewhere, not in your house, near your house. Um but bumblebees actually aren't social all year round. Um, their colonies die down at the end of the season. And a new queen is the only one who lives over the winter. And then in the spring, this actually, this gets ties in nicely to the forest. That queen emerges from wherever she hibernated. So in the fall, when you're thinking about your golden rods and your asters, um, if you see a lot of the male bumblebees out, just mostly dying actually. But if you're lucky, you also see bumblebee queens stocking up on their fat reserves so that they can hibernate. Um, We think this is one of the really precarious points for bumblebees is getting enough fat stores that that hibernating queen, like a, think of like a bear, you know, it's like she gets as big as she can and then burrows into the ground, usually in a duff layer in the forest um, or on some sort of well-drained slope where she's a little protected um, and has to survive that whole winter so that when she comes out in the spring again and starts getting, you know, food from I'm discovering trees, but, you know, also t- all those spring ephemerals, that's the, she needs to get energy as fast as she can to start a new colony. Um, and then once she's found a little burrow, um, then she'll lay eggs and those eggs will be the worker bees. And then you actually hardly ever see the queen again. So, um, you, people probably, you or your listeners will probably think about, know this. If they think about, you know, like, oh, I've saw my big bumblebee queens, you know, kind of like weaving along the ground. They're doing that nest searching behavior. And then, you know, come, come midsummer, you only see the little bumblebees or the little, littler bumblebees, you know, they're still bigger than the other bees, but, um, and those are all the workers of the colony. And then they don't make the males and the reproductives and the new Queens until the colony reaches a certain size and it's time to start getting ready for the fall again. And then that colony dies back down. So that's just like totally different than, than your honeybees, which have to make the big honey stores. So also bumblebees aren't trying to make big, big honey stores the way honeybees are because they don't need a food to last a whole colony all winter. They just, they have some sort of like honey equivalents that are kind of for eating along the summer, (laughs) but they're, but they're not, um, they're not, they're not trying to like stock up for winter. Um, I can pause there. (laughs) I don't think I I knew, like, I feel like I should have known that. Yeah. But I I didn't know (laughs) Um, that. (laughs) And I'm glad you explained all that because I'm, I'm I'm imagining a lot of people don't know that. It could just be you and I, though. Uh, that's true, too. <laughs> but um, the other thing that you Never, said. Yeah. We should have just named this podcast 
<laughs> Fran and Tom ask questions. Fran and Tom write a script <laughs> and then don't follow it, <laughs> follow it at all. <laughs> but uh, awesome. the other yeah. thing that you mentioned was um, was some of the trees when you said they were finding pollen from uh, things like maples, which you, I've heard, okay, they use especially red maple. But yeah. then you mentioned oaks and and uh, birches, which birches I knew made pollen. And I guess it's another thing, being a tree person, I yeah. should have known oaks made pollen. But I never, I never think about oak pollen. You think about acorns. Yeah. No, and, which, and I want to yeah. tie into this since we're going to yeah. go back. Like I, I do want to go back because I already have a yeah. whole other line of questions I want to <laughs> ask. So I have to go back to get, go forward. You know, also, and yeah. speaking about the tree pollen as well. Yeah. You know, we, we always talk about bees pollinating, but we never talk we, – we don't always talk about their habitat. Yeah. So speaking yeah. of the trees and the forest, are they using this for pollen or are they using it for habitat or are they using it – both yeah easy answer is is both okay yeah all right easy answer is both um 100 and yeah and i think it's helpful because especially because like i don't want yeah I, I the stuff about like the wind pollinated trees and how people are using them is really exciting and i think it's important but like i just want to emphasize for listeners who this might be new for like bees absolutely love meadows they love you know your wetland mm-hmm. flowers they they, you're, you know, the red bud and the, the willow and well, willows are sometimes wind pollinated, but anyway, you know, all of your regular insect pollinated mm-hmm. flowers, yeah. rosaceous, those are so important for bees and those are absolutely resources. So this is just like, you know, saying that, wow, they also use some wind pollinated plants is like a really cool extra thing that we also mm-hmm. know. Yeah. So just to, just kind of to emphasize, like, this doesn't take away from all the other awesome management that we know is totally true. It's like, wow, and they're doing all this cool stuff with these forest trees that we never thought they did. Um, yeah, and to answer, like, the pollen question, um, we know there's, I don't even, I don't even know who to give credit to for this now, but some people like to say they're not just pollinators, they're actually pollen eaters mm-hmm. they're they're herbivores right so they're going to get pollen and if they've figured out that an oak tree which oak trees make whew, so much pollen um because they are wind pollinated so they have to get tons of pollen out there that enough pollen in like you know bad weather in the spring it rains maybe there's not you know depending where another oak tree is you got to get that that oak pollen to fly through the air people with allergies hate when i talk about this um you know, cause they, it has to get, you have to have enough pollen that it lands on, on the flower. But if the, if it's, if it's actually like got good protein and micronutrients and lipids in it, the bees don't care that the plant isn't making it for them. And so they can, if they figured out that it's there and they figured out how to find it and how to get it onto their little pollen, pollen collecting structures on their legs, um, then, then, then that's just like a huge food source for them. And and now I'm thinking, and I don't know who this question's for. At some point, we'll get it answered. Is that we, you know, we talk about trees like oaks that that um, have mass that they they Mm -hmm. produce acorns, and that's going to vary from year to year. No one really knows why they may go a year without acorns in the next year. I wonder if it's the same with their pollen count as far as how much pollen they produce, Mm -hmm. because there's a reason we may not understand it. But I'd, I'm yeah. wondering if it coincides with bee well, populations and things like that. I've been reading The Nature of Oaks by Dr. Doug Talamy. Oh, And I'm, right. o- I'm only on February, so that's probably why I didn't get to the <laughs> pollen part yet. He goes he goes in, like, sequence of months. and um, But uh, one of the things that I, I 
learned and then reinforced to that is it's kind of the same thing with um, like with deer, how when like deer have their babies, their fawns in the spring, they all hit the ground in a very, very short amount of time across all the deer in our area just because there's predators, there's coyotes that are going to eat those deer. But if there's all of them drop at the same time, they can't eat them all. And eventually yeah. the deer get big enough that they can do that too. And it's kind of the same thing with oaks where they can't eat all the oaks or all the acorns because yeah. there's just, it's just so many acorns that some of them are going to be able to make. It. And I wonder if they produce okay. so much because it's wind pollinated. Yeah. Like even if bees are taking the pollen, they produce so much that they can mm-hmm. still ensure their their yeah. existence moving yeah. forward. Sorry, a little side. That's just where. <laughs> welcome to my head. Um, I think it's yeah. No, I think it's great. I um, I've been thinking a lot about masting for exactly that reason. I I don't think that they're. I, I, yeah, I totally agree. The like predator satiation thing, right. Of like making sure that there's enough acorns. Yeah. That's also one of the explanations that I, that's a, that a I've great heard. word to put it. I'm yeah. going to have to remember predator satiation. <laughs> oh yeah. I don't I that. That's just what I've read. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's a lot more eloquent than how, so, how I put it. So <laughs> no, knowing what you've, you've discovered and what you realize would yeah. the, would these bee populations be able to survive if that forest were to disappear? Like say, uh, Amazon came in and said, we're building warehouses in Ithaca and, and took out a lot of that forest. Mm. Would that yeah. greatly affect the populations in that area or would they are – they, are they using it because it's an available resource or are they using it because they have to use it? They need it to survive. Um, I think that – I think that um, – oof, yeah, good, great questions. Um, I think that – we know that these habitats are crucial and we don't know how much the wind pollinated pollen would be the deal breaker, but I think that the habitat would be, would be mm-hmm. just huge, hugely important. Like you lose when you, when you lose natural area on the landscape, when you increase ag cover, um, when you lose forests, you're losing, you're losing habitat. So I think that like, um, you know, an, out in, out in the West, there's some really compelling evidence that, you know, a lot of the bumblebee declines are linked to loss of those early spring ephemerals and early spring forage. Um, I think that we probably, this is a, you know, a, a guess that we're having similar phenomena with like bees, especially with, you know, excessive deer browse and forests struggling to regenerate. Like even when you have the woods, maybe a lot of those resources are gone. I think a lot of our spring ephemerals are gone. Um, I've also, so, I mean, on your question about masting, actually, you guys are like, you're like asking the questions that I'm like just figuring out, which is like, I actually found out that sugar maple masts its pollen, which, you know, because it's a soft mast and the fruit, the the seeds of sugar aren't like the product we pay attention to. It's hardly, you know, <laughs> I've talked to people with a sugar bush and they're like, oh yeah, it does only flower some years, but nobody really like pays attention to that. And uh, I found that all my bees ate like a ton of sugar maple the year that the sugar maple was blooming mm-hmm. and then didn't the other year because it wasn't blooming. And I was like, oh my God, like, again, I actually don't, we don't know the answer yet of like, did they just eat it because it was there? Or do they have this like amazing food some year that they really rely on to like pulse the population? Mm-hmm. Like, we just don't really know. Yeah. But, um, but to the, to the bigger question, like, yes, it seems like because of habitat and like, you know, we were talking about mining bees earlier who are like really good orchard pollinators. They, um, I found, I've been finding like the, the males of those mining bees are 
almost always in the woods and only in the woods in my, at least in my system. And so like, just like you were saying, Fran, with like, you know, we always think about the bees on the flowers, where are they the rest of the time? You know, or like, what about these other resources? It's like, oh, we also have to think about the other life stages. Mm -hmm. Like if we want those female bees who are collecting all the pollen to bring back doing that pollinating work in our orchards or other vegetable crops or fruit crops, you know, well, vegetables, you know, seed crops, something, you know, then, then you need to think about, you know, where are, where are the males? Or if you want your bumblebee workers out in midsummer, you know, on, on the tomatoes, you know, like then where are the queens nesting? Right. So that's exactly to your point. And I think that like, that's, I think <laughs> that that's a big part of where the forests come in and why we lose them, why and, they're so important. And we've learned so much as we, as we've done this podcast and we talked about quail, well, you can have a lot of things for quail, but if you don't have cover, yeah. That, you know, that's not going to survive. And that's not something we always think about, you know, and, and I hadn't thought about that for bees. But it, what you just said about deer brought up a whole another question that, that I have now was the forest that you did your research in, is it – was it a healthy forest? Like did it have good understory? Because I'm wondering if there's a lot of deer browse and there's no understories. Yeah. Are the bees using the trees differently than they would if it were a healthier forest system? That's a great question. Yeah, I don't think we really know. Um, I worked in 13 uh, – mostly by the end 11 different woodlots and some of them – because I was choosing like orchard-adjacent woods. So they weren't all exactly the same, but they all had like – a a good amount of, of either of red and sugar maple. Um, it was kind of the way we tried to standardize it. Um, even though we we're kind of limited by like just which, which orchard blocks had forest next to them. Um, and some of them were just amazing blankets of trillium and, you know, really uncommon, uh, spring ephemerals. It just, uh, it was just God, such a joy to get to walk around in those woods. And, and others of them were a little more overgrazed or, um, pretty low on spring ephemerals, you know, I'd see, you know, maybe a bloodroot here, maybe a trillium there, um, you know, or would they have like one patch of May apples, but then it would mostly just be like, you know, little birch seedlings or birch clone, clonal reproduction, you know, kind of creeping along. So it really varied. Um, I don't think that at, at that level, I have the power to, you know, okay. the, the statistical power to answer that question though. But I think it's really important, um, especially because, you know, even though we know that they're using a ton of those forest trees, like one really interesting thing that, you know, we're getting at, we're talking about tree bloom is like each tree is kind of only blooming for like a short period of time, you know, and, and also each, each species of tree is only blooming for a short period of time. And that's, that's even shorter than, you know, like, sure, like your apple orchard block only blooms for, you know, a week or two weeks or three weeks, depending on how many varieties you have. So that's, you know, that's a short resource, but the trees are like even shorter. These like wind pollinated spring trees I was finding, especially when I was trying to climb, I would be like, all right, look with my binoculars on the ground, like this oak's going to be ready tomorrow. And then I'd go up and they like weren't quite open. Oh my God. I spent the whole morning climbing that tree, you know, to go back the next day and be like, oh my God, like they must've bloomed yesterday afternoon or something, you know, like, Mm. and it wasn't quite that bad, but it was often like, or it would rain overnight and all the good pollen had been knocked down. So it's a really interesting kind of like 
they're definitely eating a lot of it. They're using it. But these kind of when and why it's it's still an open question. Sorry, I'm being a little more like we don't know recently vibe right now. You know, we do know the forest is important and we know it's habitat and resources, but there's just all this complexity you're getting at. It's so cool. It's a big puzzle and it's, It's you have to, you have to have all the puzzle pieces (laughs) before you can put it all together. And it's a lot of research, especially if, if not a lot of this research has been done, what it takes to find out that big picture, you know, because my next question was in these forests, are you, are you seeing a lot of invasive tree species or invasive bee species, uh, not invasive, or exotic bee species, because I'm wondering if native bees, if it's more of a pristine forest, have less competition in that forest from non-native bees. Sorry for uh, all these questions. You know, we for our no, listeners, we always, give yeah. our, we always give our guests a list of questions that we have, and we – and, and I don't know if we've asked we've, any of these. We've, asked, <laughs> any of them. we've, we've gotten through two. <laughs> so I apologize to you, Cass, because I know we didn't we didn't give you a yeah. lot of these ahead of time, but I didn't know oh, the no, questions to I ask. Can. Yeah. Oh, oh, God. No, I mean, this is – I feel like we're just chatting about stuff that I yeah. think is cool. I'm not worried yeah. at all. Um, <laughs> and these are just, like, really good questions. I don't think I don't think we really know the answer to that question. I mean – yeah, there were invasive species, you know, shrubs and herb layer. There's a lot of invasive species. And, you know, if you've, you know, it's, it, the ecosystem is a little different in upstate New York, but a lot of it's similar. You know, there's buckthorn everywhere. There's autumn olive. Um, they, those weren't actually in like, you know, exactly where I was sampling, but yeah. we have the same kind of same vines, same, you know, same. Um, I don't, I don't think we have any invasive trees in the actual forest structure but definitely you know the forest composition is changing you get you know uh, it's different than maybe the forest composition that the bees who were forest adapted evolved with um and um uh, where i where i came to this i'm thinking about Uh, how honeybees can now compete native bees uh on agricultural crops Mm -hmm. so yeah. You know, because maybe they have an advantage and I'm wondering if native bees have adapted to work with trees out of necessity. Like I wonder if you had done the same research 50 years ago, if you would have – well, obviously everything changes so it wouldn't have been the same. But hmm. you know, if you would have seen the same amount of bees in the forest, maybe you would have seen more. I don't know. It's – that's where I I'm think, thinking. Yeah. I don't think that – I don't think that – yeah, I think that it's, that's really important. Honeybees absolutely can do, you know, outcompete. Um, or, you know, be, be a, a place where, where pathogens are, are spread, you know, accidentally in the landscape. It's, it's, that's really real. There's also, you know, the Arnott forest is not where I worked, but is up in Ithaca area and an amazing place. And that's where a lot of the research is done on, you know, feral honeybees who have, who, you know, cause all honeybees um, for any listeners who don't know, you know, are European came here with the colonists in the 1620s and, you know, are, 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 livestock but so the distinction with like the word wild and feral is one that researchers sometimes use because like they're domesticated but then they went wild right mm-hmm. so that's like a feral cat is like cats are domesticated <laughs> yeah. and they're wild um and so like these really incredible you know wild feral colonies um that tom seeley and some other amazing people have done in research like those guys have really naturalized to living really successfully and healthily in some of those woods do we know if they're like competing with wild bees who love the woods? 
Nobody knows. I, I would guess that that's not the place where resource limitation is the, is the highest pressure or these kind of like naturalized forest living colonies. It, you know, those kinds of cases are really about like concentrations of huge numbers of hives in, in, in other landscapes. Um, and I guess the, uh, maybe like a, a way to answer maybe a question that I'm hearing behind your question, if I'm right, if I'm hearing this right, is like, you know, Colleen Smith and some other folks out of the Winfrey lab have done some really cool analyses to find that up to a third, this was work done in New Jersey, up to a third of our, of the fauna in New Jersey is what we can call forest associated bees. So when you have more forest around and they did this really carefully, you know, to make sure that they were, they weren't, you know, kind of mixing up the signal. It wasn't something else affecting it, but it was really like, um, not just as there's more forest, you consistently get this whole suite of bees that clearly like really love the forest, but also the historical patterns in abundance based on, you know, we all know baseline data is pretty sketchy, but they, they also really looks like those bees have, have been increasing and successful um, as forests have regrown after colonial land clearing, right? Because we know this area was all cleared and is regrowing or it was regrown. We're all in, you know, mostly second growth forests. So they were, um, they found that those, those species have only increased and been successful with that increase. So it's, it's kind of like, you know, I feel like people are pretty used to thinking about like, or managers are used to thinking about birds needing different things, right? There's birds that need early successional habitat. There's birds that need kind of like closed forest and open. And there's, you know, the birds that are only ever in certain types that need a soft, a little bit of softwood and the canopy, right? Like, I think bees are kind of the same way where there really are suites of bees that use different habitats, even within the different time periods that they're active. Okay. So I think, I think there's forest associated bees even 50 years ago, even with honeybees. And I do think that you're getting, but the question of like, are they shifting which resources they use based on availability? And maybe are some of these less optimal than their favorite food that they might've used 50 years ago, or like before deer brows got so horrible, like probably also the yes. I don't know. Does that make sense? These no, are such it, cool. It, it makes perfect sense. And, <laughs> and I think maybe your research is the starting point for this because I'm, I'm assuming someone's going to come along 10, 20 years from now and do, you know, want to expand on it and see, hey, you know, since this was done, we've we've noticed this. So yeah, it, that's why it's so important, and, and that's why we love having guests like you on the podcast to talk about these things because I didn't know about it. If it wasn't yeah. for Kelly mentioning it to me just kind of in passing <laughs> how much yeah. she learned from you and talking about it, I was like, oh, well, you know what? I don't know anything <laughs> yeah. about that at all. But now that you – I love these questions. These are such good questions. It's so exciting. Yeah. So, so now that you've done the or you've done your research, did you conclude your yeah. research? Like is that something that you got to almost. finish? Okay. All right. Um, I haven't quite defended my thesis yet, but it's coming. I'm almost okay. done. All right. So in <laughs> to you, how important do you feel canopy resource uh, and vertical habitat is to wild bee uh, populations? Um. I think it's important. I think it's a cool piece of the puzzle. I, I don't think it takes away from how important, you know, early successional habitat is for bees. I don't think it takes away from meadows. It doesn't take away from, you know, all the other flowers that you already know and love. You know, this isn't saying anybody's doing anything wrong unless you're saying, you know, <laughs> cutting down trees helps bees because it makes space for meadows, right? Like I disagree with that because I think we need both. Okay. And I think that like, like with so many things, we need diversity of habitats across the landscape. 
And, you know, that means like, you know, you know, amazing foresters who know way more than me about timber management and, so, and sustainable silviculture who are managing for tree diversity, who are managing for landscape scale, habitat diversity. I think that that, you know, who are trying to keep, um, you know, we didn't even talk about bees nesting in snags and coarse woody debris and downed logs. Like there's all sorts of bees who love that stuff. And so people who are doing that kind of work, thinking about salamander habitat and keeping snags for um, bats and birds who need them for nesting, like that's helping bees too. And I think that just like, yeah, I think it's a really cool, like mostly overlooked part of it. And then I just like, I can't emphasize enough how consistent the research is that bees and ag for an ag lands are more abundant, more diverse, and you often get higher, even yield if you have, you know, forests and hedgerows nearby. And like, that sounds like that's gotta be hand wavy, but like, you know, that's like a pretty clear signal, even mm -hmm. through the messiness of research. So, so yeah, I don't know. <laughs> All right, well, I, I actually yeah. have a, a, a few more other questions only because I realize <laughs> I'm asking questions, but I don't know the full, you know, and I feel embarrassed to kind of ask these questions just because no. I don't know. And if I don't know, I'm assuming a lot of our listeners don't know, but the bees. I mean, I, basically everything I'm saying, I didn't know four years ago. So okay. like, I, I'm, like, I'm, I'm right here with you. Like, this is so wild. <laughs> so, so the bees that you're observing the bee yeah. species that you're observing in the forest, because I don't know how far bees travel in it or, or in, in their lifespan. Are these bees that are staying in this forest or are they just using that forest for a certain amount of time and then leaving the forest? And I know you don't have little bee trackers that are following the bees on their path, but I, I would imagine knowing the species and what their life cycle is and distance, you would have an idea if they're staying or leaving. 100%. Yeah. No, that's really important. So um, bees are what we call central place foragers. <laughs> so that means like they've got a central place and then they forage from it. So their central place is their nest and that's where they have to come back to. So you think about, uh, you know, a female bee trying to get enough pollen to make a big pile that's enough to feed a baby bee from egg to adult because that's what happens, right? They have to get enough pollen they can feed a whole bee and then they close up that zone with the egg in it and they don't come back. So they have to get a lot of pollen. So in a day, a, a, a bee is going back and forth from their nest. And so you think about that as like their limiting factor. Um, and then you, the other thing to keep in mind with that is bigger bees can generally fly farther. They don't um, like bumblebees can fly up to like eight miles. Honeybees often can fly up to three miles. They usually won't though, right? They're, if there's like good food nearby, they're going to optimize. So um, are they staying in the forest or leaving? Between generations, we don't know a lot about like how they're choosing to move from generation to generation. Actually, dispersal is really hard because tracking is really hard and genetics is only just starting to like really tease that apart. But for a given like nest, um, I like you can look at what bees pollen they have and you can ask, you know, did they only forage in this in the woods or did they only forage in the because you can okay. see which pollen they chose. And so I've got, you know, I've got bees that I caught in the woods who have a lot of apple pollen, for example, and then bees that I, you know, caught in the orchard also who had a lot of forest pollen. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they're definitely like moving between habitats. We know they're like choosing based on nutrition and all these things. So I feel like maybe I didn't quite answer your question. Though. No, no, you did. You, you totally answered the question. So right. I, I guess <laughs> I got lost in my story. Sorry. No, no. I guess my other question is, <laughs> yeah, what is a bee's natural predator? Like who's attacking bees or do they have a predator? 
other than yeah. humans? <laughs> um, birds eat them. Okay. There's um, wasps called um, bee wolves that will catch them. Um, uh, what else? There's crab crab spiders. Um, or have there's some really fun pictures because you know crab spiders kind of like camouflage with their like yellow or white. And then mm. um, assassin bugs. I've seen assassin bugs eating eating bees. Um, I don't know. Yeah, you know, yeah, a whole bunch, whole bunch. Okay, of things. so yeah. they yeah. But, so they do. They're not just you know, carefree going through the forest. They, they have, no, to okay. No. Yeah. Well, and there's a whole other, this is just nat- cool natural history, but there's like, there's all these, um, uh, parasitoid and social parasite bees and other, and wasps and, um, pathogens that will get in their nest. So there's like whole groups of bees, um, that are kleptoparasites that just go and try and sneak in the nest while the female's out getting pollen and they lay their egg on top of the pollen ball she's made. And then their baby bee, it's like just the kleptoparasite. It's like a cuckoo bird. If you've ever heard of a cuckoo oh, bird, yeah. um, it's the same kind of thing. They lay their egg in there, and then that their larvae kills the host larvae or the host egg. Depends on the stage. Sometimes whatever, and um, and then that bee grows up on the pollen. Mm-hmm. And so there's just like there's all these different defensive strategies for handling. Um, there's bumblebees that are only social parasite bumblebees that don't make their own nest, but they just go in and take over an already established nest and make the other species of bumblebee rear their offspring. I mean, it's just it's infinite. There's so many things that they're struggling with. Um, it's pretty cool. Wow. Yeah, I'm I'm yeah. learning so much was, today. You've brought up orchards a bunch. And yeah. I would have thought with ap- apple orchards that they would bring in beehives by the truckload, bringing them up from Florida to set them out for that pollination. Um, yeah. Is that not the case? And or, or are you doing this research to show, hey, maybe you don't need to bring in honeybees because if you have these, that shrubby layer or that forest layer, you're going to have some some native bees there that can handle that pollination. So I guess, yeah, I guess my the question behind the question there is what prompted this, this research to be tied to orchards in that way? Yeah. Great. Yeah. Great question. Um, you know, a lot of this research started not like just mine, but like, you know, I'm part of a way, way bigger community of so many people who are so smart doing so many cool things. And that a lot of this work on wild bees started after colony collapse hit the news you know there was like remember like 2007 um you know there was like all this just like all of the 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 worry about all the honeybees are dying um and so suddenly there was a lot more money and a lot more research in wild bees and so everybody just started looking you know ray winfrey has one of the first papers that was like a million you know she's based in rutgers in new jersey which like part of why i keep referencing her besides their work just being so awesome um uh is um you know saying like native bees provide insurance against honeybee losses and looking in watermelon and apples and all these different crops across the northeast um and saying like hey actually like sure your honeybees are pollinators but like you've got all these wild bees who are doing all this work too. And so it just started around that time when like the, the, the hysteria honestly was yeah. like so high where like honeybees, like there were, there were a lot of winter losses and there's a lot of pathogens and a lot of issues with that. And I'm not actually an expert in that. I can, you know, do big picture, but there's other people who know that way better, but um, you know, but uh but, but we hadn't really looked in like all the crops to say like, hang on, like to what degree are you actually relying on all these honeybees broadly across the U.S., right? Like honeybees are trucked from mass blooming crop to mass blooming crop. 
um, and then need like recovery periods because it's kind of stressful for them to be in these, these, you know, big agricultural monocrops. Um, and um, in the Northeast where we have these smaller farms, mostly you there is people definitely um, have honeybees on their farms. Um, and um, much more often it's a smaller um, like, okay, you know, so-and-so always brings their, you know, one or two hives over, especially on the mm-hmm. smaller orchards. And they're just like somebody who's nearby, who's a beekeeper mm-hmm. yeah. and they have a relationship, um, you know, up because I'm, I'm biased towards thinking about the Finger Lakes region. I'm so sorry. You know, there's, there's some big orchards up in Lake Ontario where mm-hmm. they need to bring in larger ones, um, larger like group, numbers of hives basically to kind of feel sure that they're going to get their pollination services. Um, but when you're on a medium sized, we're pretty comfortable saying this now confidently when you're on, you know, I don't want to be responsible for like one bad pollination year, but it seems like on smaller operations that are surrounded by even like 30%, like non ag land, mm-hmm. um, you're almost guaranteed to have enough wild bees that like, you're not, that's not going to be your limiter, you know, especially in apples, you know, you're usually thinning. Usually the, the, the baseline pollination is more likely to be a frost kill or an early spring mm-hmm other problem it's not actually a limit on your wild bee population not being able to do it and so that like those huge honeybee stories that's that's way more like western bigger bigger ag Mm -hmm. than than the scale we're thinking about across most of new jersey and new york and even pennsylvania yeah i well i know with uh in new jersey we have a big blueberry um uh What's what's yeah. the word I'm looking for, Fran? There's a lot of blueberry growers. <laughs> I sometimes yeah, get no. a porky pig who does that at the end of the balloon. Yeah, I start doing that all the time. But um, like blueberry nurseries, is that what you're trying to? No, not well, or growers, but blueberry growers. growers okay. And they rely, um, they bring in a lot of. It's a, a big industry in New Jersey. That was the wording I was looking for. Okay, totally. And they bring yeah. in a lot of honeybees and, cranber- cranber- and cranberries as well. They bring a lot of um, honeybees to pollinate it to kind of ensure that pollination. But I've talked to a cranberry grower. He's like, I'm spending all this money bringing in honeybees, and then I look at the hive, and they're going on the cranberries. They're going out in the woods and they're going to like little meadows and, and wild areas and going on the flowers there. Super and interesting. He's like, I really think that it's these native bees. And he actually started planting all this native habitat around his bogs to, cool. to kind of draw in those native pollinators. And I believe um, he worked and, with the Xerxes Society. And he on worked that, with the yeah. Xerxes Society on that, yeah. And, oh, that's uh, amazing. I can't and wait to learn more about that. Then yeah. uh, another guy who's a blueberry grower who was a uh, adjunct professor, and now he's actually working here, and um, but he's a blueberry farmer, and he said the same thing. He, he just stopped bringing in honeybees and found out that his pollination percentages actually went up. Huh. Where he and it was all from actually just <laughs> anecdotal evidence, just being in his blueberry fields and what when while they were in flower and watching the honeybees not pollinate the flowers, but chasing the wild bees away. And he's like, Huh, really? the wild bees are coming in here and pollinating. And yeah, they got rid of honeybees. But well, this industry, yeah. both those I'm industries like rely on bringing honeybees in. And a lot the first the cranberry grower referenced basically said he's like i'm too scared to pull the trigger because what if i'm wrong and well if you think about it these are both native plants to those this area and there has to be native pollinators that co-evolved with them over time yeah and you're disrupting that chain by bringing in while apples aren't a native plant but that's just interesting it was that did any of those apple growers that you were working nearby did they take an interest in your research and say oh you know what we're gonna not use honeybees if they were relying on that resource 
Yeah. Um, you know that I don't, I don't think we've had such like a clear, like uh, someone who's, Oh, I don't want to be wrong here. You know, someone who I remember saying like, I noticed that interference or like a, a, you know, a conflict, but you know, that that's total, that makes sense to me. And, you know, honeybees are actually not the most effective. They're going for nectar. A lot of times they're not going for pollen. They're like, or like, you know, sometimes they're nectar robbing, um, in uh in apple flowers, you know, you've got like your five petals, and then you like the, the the anther and stamen stick up above it, and the, the nectar is actually like at the base of the petals. So like almost all the visits from a sixty percent of the visits from a honeybee will be just for nectar, which is totally fine for them. Like you know, you can't be yeah. mad at them for doing that. They're trying to make honey for the winter. That's fine, but they're actually coming in the side of the flower. And then they're just like taking the nectar and going. So they don't actually touch the pollen. So they're not actually moving the pollen. Whereas the solitary bees, you know, they're not making honey for the winter because they're going to be, they're going to be hibernating over the winter or just as a larva over the winter or, Mm -hmm. and um, they're, they're, yeah, they're not active. And so they're going on to that pollen. Um, And I think with the ericaceous plants, it's, it's similar um, where the bumblebees and a lot of the native bees, the Haberpoda, the blueberry bee are much more adapted to really successfully yeah. getting that pollen and therefore moving. That's so cool. I would love to, you know, that's such a great story. Thanks so much. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting that we've talked for almost an hour and we've asked four original questions. <laughs> <laughs> Which, Fran, and now I was away when you put this list together and I wasn't yeah. able to put some input in. Yes. But there is one question that I would have had on here. And what is it? And it seems like the most obvious question to me. What what are the best trees for for our native bees? Yeah. Um, so definitely, there's so many good trees. Um, all the trees that people already think of are definitely good trees, right? Willow, amazing. Not only does like everybody love willow, and it makes pollen and nectar, depending on the in the cultivar. Um, but there's also a bunch of specialist bees, um, that love willow. Um, maple is like, we've known about red maple, but it's like really sugar maple is like a hidden winner, um, where, you know, you don't think about your sugar maple as an amazing bee tree. Um, the other thing is oak, you know, you're talking about, you know, um, Talamy's work with the nature of oaks and like the number of leps, uh, like butterflies and moths and all the other insects who love oak trees, like I've seen queen bumblebees foraging on oaks. I've seen, it's just amazing. Cause again, we've talked about how they, you know, they don't need the bees, but the bees need them. Yeah. Um, and then, um, yeah, so black cherry, um, you know, I'm thinking about forest trees right now, but just in terms of like something you can plant anywhere, like, you know, all your rosaceous trees are great. Amelanchier, um, service berry, um, you know, red bud, all those are really great for mason bees. Um, what are all, I, I just don't want, because I'm excited about the way they do use wind pollinated pollen, I don't want to undersell all our other awesome trees. Oh, yeah. So basically, you know, one thing, you know, with, with the, why to think about why a tree is so good is just the sheer number of blossoms that you can fit. You know, you get this, the, the square footage of a tree and then you imagine the whole, the whole tree, you know, there, there can be um, over hundreds of thousands of flowers on a given tree. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about just like bang for your buck, you plant one shrub, shrubs are great too. You know, you plant one tree and all of a sudden you've added like a million flowers to that landscape. Yeah. Cause you, um, you really add the vertical aspect as well. Yeah. It's not exactly. just horizontal, like if with a meadow where you kind of have like a certain set number of flowers per square foot, you've, you've made it yeah. a cubic footage <laughs> instead of square footage. <laughs> 
That's but, so uh, true. I try to use, read the old papers that are like, you know, uh, uh, one female red maple tree can have this many millimeter, milliliters of nectar per cubic yeah. meter of outer canopy. And I'm just yeah. like, that's a lot of nectar, but it's like kind of hard to think in cubic meters. Of yeah, outer yeah. Surface area. That's <laughs> all the surface area. Surface area. Yeah. It was, it was uh, um, the guy from Princeton Hydro who was our guest, and he's like, surface area. Jack Zapansky. The, yeah, Jack Zapansky. Surface uh-huh. area is the answer. Yeah, he's but, like, surface uh, area is always the answer. Yeah. <laughs> and it makes sense. It, not, it really does. Uh, it turns out it was true for wild bees of the woods, yeah. too, right? So, yeah, Another, you're increasing surface area. Yeah. Another little uh, side question was, did you ever yeah. find any – I know you're, like, super excited about the wind-pollinated um, pollen and, and bees. Looking at. Were there any, like, specialists – for wind pollinated plants, I don't think so. No, okay. we don't. We think it's we think it's always going to be opportunistic, um, um, and that goes for like the way that we know honeybees and other bees use like corn pollen. I realize like that's another thing that I could bring up in this conversation is like you know a lot of those are also aren't like protected or thought about with spray regimes yeah. the same way because they're wind pollinated plants. Um, and but um you know we know that bees use just tons of corn pollen for example and we think yeah. it's all pretty pretty opportunistic so so same with the trees like I'm not trying to pretend like oh there's this you know unexpected deep coevolution with like a you know well the other thing I can say I mean there is but it's not necessarily that like the plant and the bee have evolved like mm-hmm. together it's more one sided if they've consistently used them yeah. um but like chestnut there's chestnut specialists that we've pretty much almost lost because we've lost yeah. chestnut. Um, there's an Andrina that there's at least one Andrina, but there's probably tons of specialist chestnut bees, but we only know about one Sam Jurgi has been on the lookout for, um, I think you had him on, right? We did. Um, yeah. Yeah. He's been on the lookout for Andrina Rainey. Um, R E H N I is a cool specialist. Um, the other thing that I've been wondering about because we lost most of our ash now, um, but in the finger lakes over the last bunch of years, there was just like, there was a pretty significant amount of ash given how little ash there was. Like basically I had no blooming ash anymore by the end of my research, but I found, you know, a pretty good number of bees who had eaten a lot of ash. So, um, I'm wondering if like that was a pretty major resource that we've just lost. Yeah. So it's it's hard to say, yeah. I, and surface hoverflies, you know, I found a lot of birch, a lot of hoverflies had eaten birch, and there's a lot of forest associated hoverflies, and they do both pest control and pollination. Ugh. I, I yeah. will say every time I've ever been stung by a bee <laughs> in a nursery setting where they have yeah. like field B and B trees, like field field grown trees, it's it's yeah. been primarily ash, ash blocks. When you've been stung by a bee. Yeah, in, in ash blocks. Like oh. like I'd be tagging trees in a block of like a thousand. Tag, sure. Like it's always been in ash blocks that I've been stung. Huh, that's so interesting. Yeah. I want to come hang out with you there and see what's going on. <laughs> Watch me get stung. No, just like, it's you know, what are I'm, they doing? Which the, bees are they, you know? That's so bizarre. So, I would have never guessed because there's, there's no blooms on those, right? They're not. They're not flowering or i was imagining like little little trees but. you know i i don't know but you're looking at a tree that's probably about 10 to 15 foot tall at the time oh okay like a two inch huh. caliber yeah, three inch caliber old. tree yeah gotcha yeah i don't know how old ash are when they start blooming actually they're that, probably 20 or something right that i don't know but i'm sure we'll end up covering that in our new pack podcast native plan every day when we when we get to ash oh, okay. well, I can't wait. I can't wait. i'm gonna tune in no but when you think of we're losing ash we've lost chestnut we've lost a lot of elm i mean there's a lot of 
historical trees that we've lost over time. Uh, and I'm sure they're not the only ones that we're going to lose, but, um, you know, so that's already changed the landscape as it is. And as far as the wildlife and insect interaction. So, yeah, sorry, Tom. Now, now that you're just about done, what new questions do you have that, um, that you'd love to answer yourself or, or have someone else find the answer to? Um, Oh, there's so many cool questions. I think that, I think that, um, you know, a lot of my questions now, especially with this, you know, working with Xerxes that I'm really excited about are a lot more of these applied questions. And that's, you know, really what I've been motivated by the whole time. But as you've, you've heard this hour, I've, you know, spiraled down a lot of just like cool bee biology rabbit holes because it's all connected. Um, but, you know, some of these questions that you guys are getting at right away about like, you know, how good is the nutrition for, of some of these trees? Like uh, how, you know, how just because it's a big resource and it's opportunistic, like does that have implications for how well a baby bee grows up on that pollen? Or um, And there's just a brand new paper that, you know, looked at a bunch of herbaceous plants and a bunch of trees, including some wind pollinated trees and found that like, the bumblebee baby survival rate was just as it was higher actually on the, on the, all the trees, but that was just an average, you know, so we, we still are really learning a lot about that variation in quality um, and like when they choose it and why. And then the other thing that's like really cool is, you know, just thinking about forest management for, you know, diversity and how that connects to bees. I think, I think the big picture is kind of what I already said is, mm-hmm. you know, when you manage for diversity and you manage for lots of different clades of birds and you manage for, for other wildlife and you think about, you know, long-term, um, long-term forest health and regeneration of species, I think you're actually going to bring your bees along with you. Um, but that also, you know, involves like thinking about how are jumping worms impeding, you know, regeneration, how are, how is deer browse stopping our spring ephemerals from growing? And so, you know, thinking about how do we connect all those dots for people and for, and for managers or like get the incentives that groups like Xerxes are working with, you know, to like help, help that be a priority. I'm not sure. I don't know. I just went down a a whole other thought that I (laughs) was wondering, like, you know, how can we connect all those pieces? And that's why I'm so excited to meet, meet, you know, folks doing work like yours and, and, and work with Xerxes doing this, this on the ground to like, try to think like, what does it look like, you know, now to, (laughs) to care about that. What I what I love about this conversation is that you're you're kindred spirits with us with with how you feel about knowledge, you know, and it's it's all about knowledge and how much you learn. And with this research, what was the most intriguing or exciting thing that you learned from your research that as soon as you realize this, you're like, oh, my God, like you were so excited you couldn't sleep. Like what what is what was (laughs) that fact? Um. Oh my God. There's so, so many things, you know, I, I remember when I was an undergrad, I would meet grad students and I'd be like, how do they like do one thing for six years? That's so weird. Um, and I just like, <laughs> like, first of all, I'm not doing one thing, you know, it's like, it's just so much. And every day there's like something else. And there's so many just smart people to learn from. And, um, uh, you know, I think that the, the day that was just the day that I was tree climbing and I found a nest of 
um, shiny green sweat bees in a like in a rotting log on an oak tree 70 feet high in the canopy. And I just like stayed up there for an hour watching them nesting. We had no idea. We knew that shiny green bees nested in rotting logs in the forest or like, you know, you'll see them if you have a, a nice park bench. Sometimes you see the, the sweet little green bees zipping in and out of, of, the, of the big treated log on a park bench or something. But when I was like, you know, I was up in this tree and then I looked out and there was one dead branch in this otherwise super healthy oak. It was very safe to be there. And it was just like, just like swarming with beautiful green bees. Um, I was just stunned. I had no idea, no idea that they would nest up there. And I figure, oh, it's protected. You know, it's like got good air circulation, probably good fungus. And you can come up with all the explanations. It's like, that's, that's amazing. So, you know, this, this like nesting in the canopy thing is this whole other part we barely talked about. Cause it's all just anecdotal at this point, you know, we catch bees up there, but there's only so many observations. Of like, <laughs> I, I would imagine up there it's, they're safe and, and they have less to worry about, which is, which yeah. is wonderful, which makes sense. But I guess, like you were saying, if you're not up there, you don't know. Like if you're not. You just don't know. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's so true. I, I've said this kind of, I'm, I'm really big on puns. You guys have been safe today, but I, you know, like to say, <laughs> we, we overlook them because they're overlooking us or, you know, something like that. Oh, that's, oh. that's something Tom would yeah. use. Right, I got to give you, I got to give you. All right. Oh, wait. Oh, that's the wrong. Oh, dang it. I hit the wrong sound effect. Fancy Sorry. Sound for nothing. I had the wrong. Oh, never mind. Well, you could you would awkwardly do it way too late. Right? <laughs> what we, what we do, I was, I was, <laughs> that's what I was looking oh, for. <laughs> Sorry, wah, 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 uh, too late. That is awesome. Um, so, oh, friend, uh, you have do you have a uh, where are you going with this? Uh, well, I was going to ask, given the research that yeah. you've done, is there someone else's research that is ongoing that you're excited about that yeah. that marries in with what you're doing um or it doesn't have to marry in but no absolutely i mean i can't say enough good things about the work that um ray winfrey's group in new jersey is doing so i'm really excited to be closer to them um so that we can just like keep talking about forest bees um and um mike ulishin in um in Georgia is someone I talk and work with a lot. Um, he's doing, he did a lot. He did some of the very first canopy sampling with passive traps. So I want to give him a lot of credit for trying that. He actually was like a rotting. He did a lot of like um, decomposing wood beetle associates and oh. like um, wasps, wasps and how they use different strata in the forest and stuff. And then he's like, hang on, bees are awesome. So he's been really fun to talk with. Um, there's, there's some folks in Massachusetts doing bee work, um, in forests. And then, you know, just in terms of managers, I only just started working with these guys because the pandemic shut down everything. And, um, but there's a lot of cool folks working on like, um, uh, using, um, like the are not forest, I guess, is a place where I was, I was just really excited to start working with them. And then, um, kind of finished up my program and the pandemic interrupted everything, but, but they have, um, you know, sustainable timber management practices they're working on. And then they, they did this cool, like they were building slash walls out of all the slash from the timber harvests. And they built this huge deer exclosure. Um, so to see how the regeneration would work. And then this cool thing I was walking around with Christy Sullivan, who's at the department of natural resources out there. And we were just seeing all these green bees nesting in all the slash piles that they had used to um, help protect the forest region. And then all the bees were using both like all the, the plants coming up in that recently opened up gap in the woods 
and nesting in all the slash piles. And it was just like so fun to see. So that's just like one cool like case case study. But um, awesome. I don't know. There's a lot of great there's a lot of great folks out there. I'm sure I'm missing tons of them. If you do not know him, we'll have to introduce you to Dr. Dan Duran with some mm. of the, the yeah. beetle beetle no. research he does. Yeah. He's here oh, in New cool. Jersey. I think you'll I think you would enjoy talking to him. Awesome. Yeah, I, I can't wait to I can't wait to meet everybody. That's that's great. Thanks. Awesome. Tom, I interrupted yeah, you. Well, I apologize. I was going to say there's so many more questions we could ask and probably yeah. should ask, but I don't know if we have time for them all. And we wanted to learn a little bit more about you and what inspired you to get into this field. Um, so, yeah, I guess really what inspired you to take this path? Um, whew, let's see. Uh, whew, uh, so much easier to talk about bees. Um, <laughs> just joking, I guess. I, yeah, I mean, so I... I've, I've made it sound linear, but it felt not linear to me. You know, <laughs> um, I grew up, um, kind of North of Poughkeepsie a little ways in upstate New York. Um, and we had 4-H dairy goats. And I feel like that was like this huge part of my childhood was having, you know, having this kind of small kind of hobby scale, but it was really important for me, you know, livestock in the backyard and, we thought, I, I felt like I just spent my whole childhood trying to be out in the meadow as much as I could. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, we, again, we didn't make our living on it. So I, I don't, you know, I don't want to misrepresent it, but my, you know, my dad and I got really into trying to think about everything and we cut our own hay and, you know, so I was like paying attention to like, Oh, you know, here are those grasses growing back different. I don't know. This is like how I'm trying to figure out how I ended up being an ecologist basically. I'm you know, back figuring it out. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and we went to the county fair every year. So I guess like I, I, but I wasn't thinking about insects at all then, but I feel like that's like why I am who I am, um, was just all that, like <sighs> connecting all those dots. Um, and I, I just loved, I, I wasn't even really a plant person then I was like all about just like small livestock and food and we were making our cheese. And so I think I got to college and like, I thought I was going to be a French major or an art major or something. And then college was hard and I took a year off and I came back and just was taking like, I was like, Oh wait, I can take like classes about bugs and plants. And this is amazing. And that was, um, and then, you know, I, I, you know, we've already talked about honeybees and kind of referenced that that's a really complicated kind of agricultural ecological, you know, intersection there with, and there's ways that honeybees are detrimental sometimes. And, but, you know, people have such beautiful relationships with honeybees. So it's, it's a tricky kind of livestock question, right? You have to manage them well to, to not do harm to the landscape. And, um, but I, my reason I said that is my gateway bee was the honeybee, just like most people. I, I was working in a honeybee lab that I got lucky enough to work in my sophomore year. Um, and we were looking at, symbiotic gut microbes and honeybees and all that was, you know, that was really exciting. But then that professor left and I was like, but I like bees. What am I going to do? She, she went to another university and I found a grasshopper ecologist who was willing to let me work in the old field meadows and catch bees. And that was when I realized that there were all these wild bees. And at that point, you know, there wasn't a big ag program. And so I was just like trying to study. I was trying to learn everything I could about plants and animals. And I had taken an absolutely incredible entomology course with Marta Wells, who I cannot speak highly enough about. She's um, a professor at UConn, who's also a lecturer in EB at, um, at Yale. And she runs the, uh, um, she runs the, entom- the only entomology class available. And she's just an absolute joy and her passion and enthusiasm is infectious. And um, I think that 
yeah, anyway, I ended up doing that work uh, and then, then it, um, on the bees. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. That was a longer story than I needed to tell. <laughs> no, that's all. Awesome. Who, who <laughs> along, along that path, who has been your biggest inspiration? Oh, I don't know. I forgot to think about this question because I have really- <laughs> It doesn't even have to be someone that you've met or someone that's alive. It could just be is there, is there anyone in the field that you admire that's so inspirational, their work or – um, there's so you, many. You can say me. Yeah, I was okay. going to say, I feel like Fran's fishing. Uh, he's trying to suggest someone that you might, you might be, be lacking some hair. I saw Tom Smile. He might be looking at you right now. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm terrible at questions like this. I mean, oh, you know, there's, there's books I read and people I admire and, I feel like it's people, there's people who really do amazing work connecting the dots between, you know, people like Marta who just have that absolute joy in teaching. Um, and then I think, you know, there's um, other researchers I, I really, and not that they had to be researchers, but like people I really admire who are, who really can connect the dots through to like why things matter and how people relate to them. So I think of, I don't know. Oh, I feel like if I start naming names, it'll just be like a list of like <laughs> yeah. too many people. Um, yeah, and I mean, I think you know, there's there's some some colleagues and folks doing really important work thinking about like how um, you know our land management choices connect to you know. I'm actually living in in Philadelphia right now for the first mm-hmm. couple months that I've moved here. Okay, and thinking great about town. Um, great town. Oh, it's, it's been cool. You know, I, I, I'm clearly like a country kid, but I also have learned to really love and learn from the way people engage with natural systems in cities, even though it's not like my, my first habitat. Um, and I think it's actually really inspirational. So I guess I've been thinking about like, how do you connect those relationships and thinking about Mm -hmm. like, you know, um, what does it look like to think about greening efforts in the city while also thinking about housing justice and how, you know, greening an area yeah. can drive up rent and then people can't live there anymore who you're trying to get trees for. And, you know, so I, I guess like a lot of the people I'm feeling really inspired by these days are, are people working really hard on connecting those dots. And that's too many to list. But. Yeah. So yeah. You, you've just started at the Xerces Society. What kind of led you to take that step in that direction? Um. I've always admired the Xerces Society. I was thinking about that this morning, getting ready for this. I, I actually remember going to a workshop that Kelly ran back. I don't think I've told her this back in like 2013 with a friend. We like drove out to rural Connecticut. This is somewhere from where we were living to do a farming for beneficial insects talk. And I was like, well, she knows everything about bugs and she's making it so useful for farmers. Like that's who I want to be when I grow up. Um, and uh, I remember literally that day being like, she, this is the most amazing thing. Um, so I think that I, I always dreamed of some sort of work where I got to think about the cool biology all day, but like make it useful for people. Um, and so I'm, you know, I, I hope I can halfway live up to that a little bit. Um, and, uh, 
And yeah, and then the job opening actually just happened in like this magical way. And then they were really patient working with me through the recruitment as I'm trying to wrap up my thesis. And my partner lives in Philly and I've been in Ithaca and we've been back and forth. And I was like, hang on, this part of New Jersey is like this beautiful rural area. And, you know, I've I've come to like Philly, even though I didn't think I was a city kid. Like this is a really, really cool neighborhoods. There's all these parks and, you know, really cool things to get to see the way that, you know, my last name's Urban Mead. So I have this like, you know, city meadow trying to like fit all the pieces together i feel like it was just a really magical combination of like a dream job and like an area that i already cared about not too far from where i grew up so i felt like you know the ecosystem makes sense to me i already love and know a lot of the trees and plants around here and and bees awesome yeah well, there's, I don't know. Here I am. <laughs> I've only just started, though, so I, you know, I can't wait to meet you guys in person and get to really see what's everything that's going yeah. on. So Fran filled me in this morning and uh, and said he he added a secret question that he didn't yeah. send to you beforehand. No, uh, I, in I, addition to all our other secret yeah. questions that we've already no, had, I, it's a, I, I thought <laughs> we'd be really missing an opportunity if we didn't ask yeah. this question, yeah. and we thought we wanted to talk roller derby. Oh, uh huh. That's what I'm doing my bios, right? I saw that. I was like, yeah. wow, now that's something we have to discuss. So, you, you, <laughs> in your spare time, you teach roller derby to children? Was that, is yeah, what I, I okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I know. It's one of the biggest things the pandemic has taken from me. Um, I, uh, or whatever from all of us is, um, yeah, when I moved to Ithaca, I thought I was going to do a whole series of things and I ended up accidentally going to roller derby open house first couple of weeks. And I, it like just, you know, spiraled my life down that other rabbit hole. I had a really weird first year. I was like at practice every night, not every night, but many nights. And then I'd be like, okay, I'm going and climbing trees the next day. And I was like, this is a really intense little <laughs> year I've gotten myself into. Grad school was a great idea. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, Ithaca roller derby, I only played for a year. So I, I played for a year and then I got, I sprained my ankle pretty badly. And I realized that it's a high injury sport, which I had known intellectually, but hadn't absorbed. <laughs> and uh, uh, I was playing a little too fearlessly. I, people told me, I thought I was just trying to play. I don't know. And uh, I sprained my ankle <laughs> and I realized I'd gotten lucky, you know, and I was mm. like, this is, this is only going to escalate and I need to be in the woods every day. And I got to walk around a lot of farms and I'm never going to, you know, I want, I didn't, it wasn't just like, I need to put my research first. It was like, I really care about this and I got to be able to walk. So I switched to, but I had already started, you know, helping out a little bit, the kids, the junior rollers um, and kids are awesome and spunky. And the kids who do roller derby are extra awesome and extra spunky and weird. And that's the best thing. So um yeah, I, uh, <laughs> that's awesome. We are kindred spirits. That's that's, that's listen. Everyone here yes. about about ten yeah. years ago had to deal with. I had major knee surgery after a soccer incident. Where yeah, I, and they had to deal with me yeah. <laughs> after after that that injury. And it wasn't so much the uh, the surgery was great. I was I was back on my feet pretty quickly, but they had to deal with my whining. Yeah, I think we were in more pain than Fran was. <laughs> oh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's horrible when you're used to doing that and then you get injured and then you can't move. You know, I really, I really respect, I don't know, it's like just, it's so hard. Well, I really my, rely on running I, around a lot. So. I, I was saying I know that I'm old now that when I fall, my kids look at me with real concern now. It's, <laughs> it's, it's not like – Oh look, Dad fell. Ha ha! It's like, oh my God, are you okay? Like, don't move, don't move. We got, like, I had, a, I pulled out, and my kids are this year. They're going to be nineteen and twenty-two this year. So 
but I had an instance over the holiday where I actually missed – I went down the steps in the dark and missed the bottom step and fell and oh, landed. I and I, I let out a loud groan and everyone <laughs> – like just the look on their faces, I was like, don't look at me. Don't look at me like that. I'm oh. okay. <laughs> I'm okay. <laughs> that and I had a spill on a pogo stick, which I shouldn't have been on a pogo stick. I, I, I guess That's I'm too scary. too heavy to be on a pogo <laughs> stick at this point, so – uh, uh, me. They seem tippy in the best circumstances. Well, yeah. it was more of a, a, a little kid's pogo stick. So when I jumped on it, I bottomed out really quickly and then – And just tipped over. I tipped over <laughs> and then it sprung me out on the driveway. So oh, enough so, about me. <laughs> we, we always save our hardest question for last, and that is what is your favorite native plant? Oh, yeah. I was intimidated by this one. Um, There's no okay, wrong I, answer. We will say that. No. Okay. I I think I figured it out though. There's a lot of, there's so many, I've already talked about a lot of trees I love and a lot of stuff. So this one's just like one that stole my heart. I feel like I just got swept off my feet by this plant. Cause I had never gotten to, you know, you're in school all these years, or even if you're working, you don't necessarily get to walk around in the forest every day. And I got to do that when I was doing all this bee sampling and I had never seen early meadow rue before, um, philictrum dioicum. And uh, I realize it's kind of poetic because it's actually a wind pollinated spring ephemeral. It has those like the anthers that hang down like wind chimes. They're just like and the, the leaves are so beautiful and you hardly ever see bees on them. So this isn't about my life as a research or like, you know, as a bee person. I just think it's the most beautiful plant. And uh, there was one forest where I would always see them. And they're my favorite. So that's my answer. That is a great cool. answer. Yeah. And that one's not one that has yeah. been said, but that is a fantastic plant. Oh, yes. Okay. That is a good plan. <laughs> so I do – real quick, are, are we going to yeah. see a roller derby comeback in Philadelphia? Is there going to be oh – like, we can know. come root you on? You know, I've been thinking about it. It's I know it's the kind of thing where if you start, then you don't have any more evenings and it's hard to go to everything else and it becomes your whole life. But I don't know. I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking about it. I, I haven't written to them yet because I think they were on pause for the pandemic. I think okay. I only just started up again. They actually started up the week I left, and I was like, good timing, guys, because I don't know. I left this time. <laughs> so but um, uh, I'll let you know, though. I'll let All you, right. I'll let you uh, I would uh, need. I would uh, need to come up with a good new, like, punny name. So I would I would call you in. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you can ask Tom. He yeah. can help you with that. So then the, the other thing we like to end with is we give everyone yeah. the chance to have a final thought. So if you forgot something you want to bring up, you want to promote something, you have uh, – I was going to say as much time as you need, but you don't have as much time as you need. You have about a minute. No pressure. No pressure. Yeah. Um, I think – I think no, I feel like um, – I think I've – said either, you know, whatever, I guess just like, thank you so much for, you know, I, I want to, I, your listeners have been really inspiring. I've been listening to your podcast and there's so many people doing amazing work here. And, you know, I guess people know now what, what, what I talk a lot about. So if there's any ways, you know, to connect or work together, I'm just so honored to be, you know, working with y'all in New Jersey and to, to hopefully add, add some bee knowledge and learn from, from all of all the amazing things happening here. So so thank you. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Can't wait to meet you. <laughs> yeah. Tom, would you, I, would you I, like to go? Yes. And um, so I also spent some time climbing trees because I, I like to hunt deer. So different different thing. But it's just amazing totally. sitting there in nature and observing and all the things yeah. you see. And I've take, I get so much out of the the just observing probably more so than the actual like hunting aspect i just like sitting out there it's a lot of fun 
because um, you see so many interesting totally. things. Like I've had hummingbirds come right up next to my face just because you're sitting there still. And mm-hmm. but That's it was so cool. It was just this past year I noticed, and this was in the like September. And I was just noticing a lot of bee activity. And this is 20 feet up in a tree. I'm not nearly in the canopy, but, and you're yeah. seeing bee activity. And I was just trying to pay attention, see what kind of bee it is and see what it was uh-huh. doing. And, um, yeah, it's just a whole nother world that's up there that people just don't, you don't even think about it. It's, it's really, really interesting. Um, so go, go climb a tree safely. Tie yourself in, use like some kind of harness or ladder, but climb a tree and get up there and make sure you don't fall. (laughs) Awesome. All right, Tom, I'm going to need you to help me with my final thought. So Tom came in today. Tom was just at a a follow-up for a management clinic and brought back um, paperwork, like paperwork on, was it listening blocks or roadblocks? Yeah, listening listening, blocks, yeah. Listening blocks, and it was – uh, a page front and back, and of course I didn't listen. I only looked at the front page, and I was like, "Oh, I only do one of these." And then, and of course, I did just about all of them on the the other page. And you think about all the things that you do when you're you're listening to someone, and if you're really listening, and and some of the mm-hmm. stumbling blocks you come across. And you know, I was a little nervous because we did this, and then came right into the podcast, and I'm like, "Oh no, I don't want to be over analyzing <laughs> my listening skills." During this, but it really, you know, sometimes when you're doing this, you get locked into asking questions. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And you're not always listening. And I, I think today, I'm, I'm so glad I was way more focused on listening because mm-hmm. you, you had so much great information to say that we had a completely different podcast, I think, than maybe we would have with the questions that we asked and all the fantastic information that you had to share with us. And, uh, you know, all the things that you want to know sometimes, you just have to make sure you listen. And mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm not always the best at that, and I admit that, and I'm working on that. But it was a fantastic podcast to just focus on to make sure I was listening because this was a fantastic, fantastic show today. And I can't thank you enough for being a part of it with us. Thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you so much. It's absolutely my honor. Oh, anytime, anytime. I think that's it. Yeah, so that wraps us up. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening to Cass Urban Mead from the Xerxes Society. Thank you, uh, Cass, for having an easy-to-pronounce last name um, <laughs> <laughs> because I screw those up a lot. And I didn't put the website in for you, but I think you probably um, – Yeah, so if you Google the Xerxes Society, it's probably going to be the only thing that pops Xerxes. up. Xerxes.org, I think. I think it's Xerxes.org. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so for more information, visit their website. Uh, and Cass, do you have a, a – personal website or like social media they can follow to see your stuff directly um you know what i don't have a website anymore i used to but uh so it might be floating around like if if people google me but i don't think you can find it uh sorry so yeah i'm on i don't know at this point like my research you can find on like google scholar i'd be happy to like email people pdfs or stuff anytime um or i'm on twitter but that's kind of just a hodgepodge. It's mostly B facts though. Um, that's, I think if you go on Twitter and search my name, you'll find me. I don't okay. remember exactly. We'll put yeah, it in the show. Know, notes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So um, where was I? Oh yeah. I was at the part where I say, thank you everyone for listening to <laughs> Healthy Planet presented by Pounds Nursery. If, if you want more of this besides all of our other uh, 90 plus episodes, we also have the new podcast, which is a native plant every day with Tom and Fran where we do one native plant every day, Monday through Thursday. Uh, so you, you're not interrupted on Fridays for native, uh, native plants, healthy planet, but 
you can uh, catch us there. You, it's a native plant every day at podbean.com, and there's a way to link to wherever you consume your podcasts. We're giving a big thank you to the Egocentric Plastic Men for contributing our theme music. Uh, make sure you stream or buy their songs wherever you consume music or go see them live. They're in and around the Maniunk uh, area of Philadelphia, so if you like live music, go check them out. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery or Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet, and YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Uh, don't forget about the question and comment line. Man, it's been it's been on fire recently. We've gotten a ton of uh, questions and comments. Call us at 215-346-6189. I'll repeat that, 215-346-6189. Ask a question, leave a comment. We'll play it on a future episode of The Buzz and answer it to the best of our ability. And uh, if you haven't joined the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group, just keeps growing. The conversations this week have been phenomenal. And uh, again, I can't can't thank everyone enough for being so helpful and polite. We we appreciate that. Yeah. So you can listen to Native Plants Healthy Planet directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. Um, but you're probably going to listen on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, uh, Stitcher, really wherever you consume your podcasts. Uh, and we show up there every week. And um, if you're on our website, you can find our Teespring store, which we have some podcast merch. And, uh, again, we don't take any money from that. It Basically, we are the mediator where we take that and then give it to the, the organizations of our choosing that we think are really doing great work for, uh, for native plants, habitat, pollinators, those kind of things. So when you're on your, your listening platform of choice, if you can – Leave a five-star review, and if you write something, I'll give you a little shout-out on our Buzz episodes. I really enjoy doing that. And, um, yeah, that's it. <laughs> no secrets because that's for the that's buzz. That's for the buzz. It's like I feel weird because I've just, like, overloaded the, all the, all this week with so much information. I forgot how to do this. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, you have to tell everyone who you are. Uh, yes, and that's where I say thanks, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thank you again, for, uh, thank you again everyone. Cass, thank you again so much. This has been wonderful. Thank you for being a part of this. Yeah. Uh, tune in next week uh, where we have a buzz episode, which will be a lot of great follow-up and more questions on the question and comment line. So make sure you uh, tune in. And until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.